Hello and a very warm welcome to the Big Carp News Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Harbour, and I'm delighted to be bringing you a number of podcasts over the coming months. We'll be talking all things carpy right here in the USA, everything from the history of carp angling right up to the current times and absolutely everything in between. So whether you're out on the road or on a session waiting for a fish or just relaxing in the comfort of your own home, grab yourself a drink, take the weight off and sit back as I'm delighted to connect you with a number of guests here on the Big Carp News Podcast. Today, I'm joined by an angler that is very well known here in the USA for his efforts and continued commitment to help put carp in a much brighter light. Over the years, he has had many memorable captures and as of late has made the move from the eastern side of the USA over and down to the coastal state of Florida, often splitting his time between the amazing lakes of Europe and also offering his time as the current president of the Carp Anglers Group right here in the US. If you haven't guessed it by now, I'm delighted to offer the third episode of the Big Carp News podcast and introduce to you Mr. Ian Sorrell. Figured this might be a little bit of a better option than having a fly or, or drive all the way down to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was going to say it was hurricane season, or it is supposed to be hurricane season here, but you guys probably got hit harder than we've done so far. Yeah, like, um, oh, when was it? Two weeks back, we had a big one come through. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, not power out for a good seven solid days. Everyone yeah, was, that, that was That was supposed to hit us. Yeah, it kind of and it, and it just it. never came across from the East Coast. And uh, we just got lucky with this one as well because right. <laughs> that that decided to, you know, boogie going up the uh, the Gulf and, uh, you know, really feel sorry for those guys. So they're going to get hammered. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I feel for you guys down there. I mean, life in Florida has got to be a little bit different though, isn't it? Than, than kind of <laughs> just, being over this way, right? Like a smidge. Just different. a bit. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, I'm actually getting used to the heat now down here in the summer. I mean, the humidity is the toughest part. Right. And, um, you know, that's just, you know, just part of the parcel in the, in the summer. And as I say, we, we hope we'd be, you know, bouncing backwards and forwards to Europe at this time, but no, we're stuck here. So um, no, it's, it's been fine. You just get up, you know, I go fishing first thing in the morning. I was, that was my next quote. Like, what, what's the, what is the fishing? I mean, I've been down there and done some, you know, shore fishing and surf fishing and stuff like that. But is that primarily what you're doing? What's, what's the yeah. car? Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, well, there's no car within about eight hours of me. Oh, yeah. Not good. Well, for some. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it's just different. So, um, I mean, I, you know, I've always been a multi-species angler anyway. So, yeah, right, right. Um, um, and, and, you know, you know, I'll pick up a, you know, cart rod as quickly as I pick up a fly rod or a spinning rod or whatever. Now you're so, right, are you right um, on the beach where you are or are you, on yeah, the- so you get, you get, um, along the beach here, you've got, um, you know, we're on the Gulf side, so you've got snook, um, and, and they're right. In, I mean, literally within two or three feet of the beach. Oh, so um, you could fly fish for them if you wanted to, that kind of, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you've got snapper and you've got um, jack creval and a few other species, uh, redfish, ladyfish, uh, and the fishing's slower at this time just because of, you know, it's so hot. Right. Um, right. I've also met up with a guy who's got a very nice flats boat and um, 
he uh, he needs some help getting you know to to crew the boat. So I'm oh, very lucky to get out on that two or three days a week. And uh, God, that sounds phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, explore, exploring the uh, you know all the back what they call the back country, which is basically um, the shallows and mangroves, and right. um, that's just just an extraordinary environment just now amazing. is that uh, like fishing wise is that like top water or is that fly fly fishing based or yeah i mean i mean you know we carry a, you know both of us carry fly rods and then we've got you know light spinning jig rods right. because essentially what's happening is you're casting right tied up against the mangroves so you get to within the fish hold up in there right i suppose yeah tight in there for the most part, and um, yeah, that's where the snook lie, and that's where the you know the big snapper and and you know so on lie. Redfish will be a bit further off that. Jeez. So you just you know you're just making casts there and trying to find them. Um, you know, some days you go out and you you, you blank, um, and then other days you can have like you know a couple of days ago we went out and we got some nice speckled trout and a couple of snook and a redfish. It was it was great fun. You know, so and you only go out for like three hours because it's. By ten o'clock, you're toasted. I mean, oh, you're roasting hot, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, like, and there's no shade out there for that kind of thing. No, is there? I mean, no. you're, you're on a boat that's in, in the open, and it's it's full on sun, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've never done any of that myself. Uh, I mean, I've, like I said, I've done a little surf casting, but um, that more this way, definitely nowhere. Yeah, down that actually, way. A bit, like, a bit like you, I'm starting to get back into cycling. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've been actually pedaling around some, you know, lakes and and canals here. Um, and we've got, you know, various species of gar. And I mean, I've been told there's a couple of places where there's actually peacock bass. Right, so right, okay. that's going to be, you know, I really want to catch one of those. I mean, I've caught, you know, big gar in Texas, but I've never caught some of these smaller ones. Yeah. You know, and I'd like to do that on a fly rod if I can. So. Ah, that sounds um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. With all those multi, well, all the different species you've got so close, obviously so close to you, because, you know, you've got pretty much. Uh, you know, a, a huge selection of fish to, to kind of go for, haven't you, down there uh, within you have, you know, yeah, close yeah. proximity. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, I mean, I really miss my carp fishing. And, um, <laughs> I was supposed to be heading back over to to Parco to Italy in uh, ne- next month. Right, and, is that uh, together? Off, I can't do it. Um, yeah. yeah, Dean Brooks and I were going to do that. That would be my fourth year. That would be his third there. Um, phenomenal fishery isn't it that one i mean obviously you know big big fish all round for yeah for that. i mean it, it's um it, it really is i mean you've got a what 35 acre lake with probably two thousand fish in it um, I mean, it, it, it is mental and, and 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 you know big fish as well um yeah nothing's really small is it from what i've seen everyone you know the the fish that do come out the captures are quite quite special they, do, they, they do stock it with smaller fish right. i mean i mean i've had fish as small as about 12 15 pounds out of there which is which is really weird yeah right. um, <laughs> especially I mean, you, when you know your next fish could be 60 70 pounds it's um, mind-blowing isn't it uh, yeah that it one's mind-blowing and and it but again it's a different kind of fishing and i you know i first time i went over there um, yeah, I thought, well, you know, it'll be interesting to see how these fish fight. You know, they haven't been, you know, they've probably been caught so many times, but all that stuff. These things absolutely put me right in terms of <laughs> it was mind boggling how hard these fish fought. I mean, right. they because it's not like large water, is it? It's not like they're moving too much in there. Well, they're not- yeah, it's interesting. It, the, the, tr- the interesting thing there is that. The fish will just move to where the anglers are not a lot of the time. <laughs> right. And and they, you know, the, 
I mean, th this is how crazy it is. I was just reading that there's been guys going over there dumping massive amounts of bait in, massive amounts. I mean, we're talking 200 kilos of bait in a week. Oh, my gosh. Which is, which, which is actually, uh, it really isn't productive. And right. one of the tricks I learned from a couple of people is, you know, just spawn, spawn, spawn. And you can almost, you know, throw four spawns out and then you're just hovering over your rods waiting for a run because you're in fishing most of the time in 20 foot plus water. So it's kind of like the dinner bell goes or the fish moves in. And exactly. Off, off and they follow, they follow the bait down to the bottom and then they'll feed on the bottom and then they'll come back up and sit within about six to 12 feet of the surface. Jeez. I mean, I, you know, we threw my deeper out and then started spawning around it and you could see yeah, the fish on the deeper just dive for the bottom wow. and spawn hit the water. Moving in on the bait. Wow, that's yeah. insane, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, it, it just crazy. But the you know, again, it's it's um, you know, fishing with people like Frank Warwick and Henrik Hansen and some of these guys, Chris Thompson. Really, I mean, what a learning experience. Um, right. And just seeing those guys in operation is uh, phenomenal. We met another guy out there, Sam Taylor who'd fished the week before Dean and I last year. Again, absolutely extraordinary angler. And, you know, when everybody else is struggling, he's catching fish. And <laughs> just one of those know-how-to-read-the-water kind of... Yeah, and, and also and just, just yeah, again, didn't overbait it, just but sure. kept it trickling in and, and made the most of when the fish were feeding. That's the trick. I mean, the, uh, the first year I was there, I discovered that um, I, you know, I ended up in a swim that I had nobody had fished for probably two years. Um, and I suddenly realized it was, it was into a bay there where nobody was fishing down at the end of that bay. And I could see fish moving out in the, in the morning and moving in, in the evening. And I just put bait in along the margin, literally just some hemp, some sweet corn, you know, little bits and pieces like that. Fish a you know, couple of grains of you know, imitation you know, enterprise bait over the top on a like a one ounce lead, literally, I don't know, twenty feet from the bank, <laughs> and and literally for there was a two hour window in the morning and a two hour window in the evening when I would catch fish, and the rest of it was just downtime, nothing happening at all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And but it, yeah, but I was catching. And, you know, when you, when you catch, you know, 30, 40, you know, I think the biggest I had out of there was about 48 on that trip, on that, in that swim. Even fish of that size is phenomenal though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. yeah. <laughs> and, and I lost a fish, a big common that we never got within five foot of the, walk, the surface. We could see it. I had this fish on for 20 minutes and I'd get it close to the bank and then it would just literally, literally rip. I've never had a fish do this. Another surge. 50 or 60 yards of line at a time. They're just full muscle, aren't they? In there, it's kind of. They've got these huge tails, and they just. <laughs> man, man, I mean, it's crazy, crazy stuff. Oh, so fantastic. yeah, I have to go over there at some point once everything. Oh yeah, you should, and it's you know, it's, it's not that expensive. <laughs> I mean, the the biggest thing is obviously the travel, but once you get yeah. there, you know, it's like they charge. I think with I think I looked at it. They did do like packages, stuff. right, or something like that. I think. What's that? I think they do like package deals or something like that. Yeah, where you, yeah. So yeah. you can rent all the tackle. You, you know, you take your alarms your reels you can get bait shipped out there pretty easily right. but actually what you do is you use they have bags of trout pellet in different sizes which you can okay buy. and then um you can buy buckets of particles if you want the particles and that's basically all you need so it seems really simple like kind of like out here very simple fishing 
but just bigger, <laughs> bigger fish. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm surprised. I mean, I, you know, I was expecting to see some kind of, you know, overwhelming, you know, UK carp scene, you know, with all the special rigs and all this stuff. Down and dirty, nice and basic, nice and simple. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, Steve Briggs was out there the first year I was there. Unfortunately, he had to go home because, uh, you know, uh, somebody passed in his family. But, again, you know, Really, you know, straightforward techniques. Um, yeah, work, you know, and just make it work. So, yeah, very, some, very, very interesting. Like that, it's kind of like I said, it's kind of like sounds like it's very similar to being here with the simplicity of everything. You don't have to over, overthink it, overcomplicate it. You can just kind of, yeah, know, very simple tactics do the job. By the exactly, and I, I think that's a very good point because I've seen that happen over here. Where you know, I, I think because we. We, we import all the ideas so much from, from Europe, we can get hung up on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, again, so you know, a simple method or a pack or something like that is really very, very effective. Um, and for me, it's always been about the baiting strategies over here. Yeah, so you think- get that right, get the fish, you know, in the swim and feeding, you, you, you're pretty much home and dry. It's, yeah, it's game one at that point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I, I, one thing I do uh, also, well, thank, thanks for joining me as well, by the way, and taking time out to uh, join us on the uh, third episode of the uh, Big Companies podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out to do that. Oh, it's a, it's a huge pleasure and, you know, to follow in the footsteps of Mike Dragone and uh, Nigel Griffin. I mean, yeah, you've got two of the, you know, kind of the best guys I've come across in, in, the, in the carp scene in, the, in North America. I mean, Meeting Nigel in the very early days, I think probably about 1995, was just amazing. It was uh, yeah, he's got some he's got some hilarious stories, but obviously some very <laughs> historical ones as well, which kind of uh, instrumental to how things kind of trickled on from from where it all began to to now and uh, and such here in the US. So it's kind of it's, it's really cool to yeah, have been able exactly. to kind of chat with him on, on on certain things like that. So yeah, again, appreciate you taking the time out to. Um, to you know to do this with us so um one one thing i do like to ask everyone is uh how how your england journey started essentially obviously you're from england originally so i assume it all kind of kicked off over there for you yeah i mean for me it was uh i think um in an effort to you know keep me busy one day my mother took me down to the grand union canal right okay uh, wow it's spring, uh, actually near marsworth and um i mean she fly fish. She, she was from uh, Berwick-on-Tweed, so grew up fly fishing on the borders there. And, and actually, I mean, I've still got the rod today. It's a hardy palacona grills rod, you know, split cane rod. Sure. And uh, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think there was a fly line on it, but she wound some mono on and, and literally sat there on the, the towpath with a, a, a float and a worm on it. And uh, the only thing I can remember, I don't know if it was that first time or a subsequent time is the float going under and and my mother just screaming at me to strike. <laughs> at which point this, this you know, the float came flying out the water with about a three-inch roach on it. Oh, blimey. It disappeared into the undergrowth behind us. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, that was, you know, whilst that was a kind of, you know, a, a momentous occasion, I think I was distraught because we never found the fish. It disappeared. Yeah. One lost, right? Yeah, that's it. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. So that, yeah, that's kind of where it all started, and right, oh, cool. 
And then it was just, you know, going out and, you know, with a couple of mates and, you know, like, like so many people, I think in those days, you know, we'd cycle or catch the bus to, you know, the Thames or the Grand Union or Trink Reservoirs, which were within cycling distance of my house. Right. Um, now, I mean, obviously growing up, the areas you grew up in, you, I mean, you, and then kind of transitioning into carp from, from the core stuff, you fished in some quite historical areas, didn't you, um, back, back well, over the pond? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean my, my carp fishing was kind of very bitty. Um, I think like many of us, we read all the books and, and the Angling Times and, you know, all the stories about carp being almost impossible to catch back then. And um, the... I, I became a member of North Harrow Waltonians, which had Springwell Lake and the Colne Valley, which, as it turns out, became one of the top carp waters of in course. the <laughs> early 1980s. Um, so I think I joined it when I was about 15 years old. And, and again, yeah, we'd kind of make our way over there. And we were more interested in catching almost anything. Um, but I, my primary focus probably for the next three or four years there was actually big pike. Um, right. Okay. It was it was loaded with some very very good sized pike. I mean, sure. I think the biggest out of there was twenty six, twenty seven. Okay. But we would we would catch numerous, you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty one pound pike out of there. Just incredible. It's insane, isn't it? Uh, and then no, we had just they're just there. They were naturally stocked and just kind of grew on yeah, from, yeah. from the natural kind of um, foods that are in there, the small roach and stuff like that. I yeah, imagine. I mean it was a real kind of multi-species water, but at the same time they were stocking it with carp. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> so which is kind of bizarre. Um, and and the, I mean most of the Colne Valley fisheries had you know significant um, carp stocking programs at that time. But most of the fish they were putting in were, I, I doubt, were much below above five or six pounds. And they just kind of naturally grew on. Yeah, yeah. Over, you know, over the years, yeah. So, so the first carp I actually caught out of North Harrow was um, about sixteen pounds. Not bad. Sixteen pound mirror, <laughs> but it was on dead bait. <laughs> oh my god! You know, like that's one thing that's always blown my mind, and then. You know, I hear, um, uh, I've heard a number of other podcasts as well. They all talk the same things that na- naturally carp will eat their own, you know, in terms of spawn and yeah. they are, yeah. you know, can be predatory as well. So oh, they're highly predatory. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I've seen them, you know, in particularly in the US crashing on bait fish. Um, and I've seen it on the Connecticut River. Literally, I mean, I, I thought it was a school of striped bass and it, if I hadn't had my binoculars and trained my binoculars on it, I wouldn't have realized they were carp. But it was Unreal, probably you know, half a football field size of carp smashing the hell out of bait fish on the surface. Yeah, and for anyone else, that you'd have thought it was, like you said, some bass or, or pike or predatory yep. fish. Yeah, exactly. Chasing them. And yeah, unreal, isn't it? But again, it just goes to show. <laughs> and I, I've, seen, I've seen them. I saw, um, you know, I was fishing a pond and you know, I could see carp cruising around probably – four or five feet down and near the surface was a school of, um, you know, the golden pond shiners, you know, like a, a bit like a roach in England. Sure. Yeah. These things were probably four or five inches long. And and this carp came out like a missile and nailed one of them. Oh my God. It came clean out of the water with this thing. (laughs) It it basically inhaled it in the process. So unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, it's not unbelievable. I believe it fully. I mean, yeah. I hear all these crazy stories about them, how how many crayfish and how big the crayfish are that they eat. I'm I'm 
positives on, you know, without yeah. ease, they can take those. Well, those it, fish here's a story for you. So, you know, as you know, I mean, fishing the Connecticut River, fishing the tidal section, um, you know, occasionally we you know, put the fish in a sling or something like that, you know, particularly in the competitions that Dave was running. Yeah. And, and I had a carp venting out what I thought at first when I looked at it was uh, pieces of, um, you know, uh, uh, clam or swan mussel. Okay, yeah, which is a fairly regular occurrence. Which is pretty, you know, yeah. you'd expect. And then I looked a bit closer, it was actually pieces of blue crab. Oh, jeez. And there was, there, was a, um, there was a claw in there, you know, basically a whole claw that was about the size of my thumb. And I'm like, that's a huge crab that it ate. And wow. so I actually ended up talking to a buddy of mine who at the time was commercially catching uh, blue crabs. He said, oh, yeah, we, we get them. So, yeah, they use these drop nets with a dead fish in it. He said, we get carp coming in there and eating pieces off the dead fish all the time. Wow. And then he phoned me, I mean, like, just, you know, really excitedly told me about this carp of about, I don't know, 15 pounds, something like that, moved in. And uh, one of the um, blue crabs that was feeding on the fish kind of went into its defensive mode, which it they pushed themselves up on their front claw, you know, legs. That's and right. And yeah, they yeah. paused around. And he was watching. He said, this carp basically got within about six inches of this blue crab. And he said there was this, just like this big movement in its um, gills. And the crab disappeared. Gone. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it came over for a that whole guy. different yeah. perspective on, on what these fish are capable of doing when they get really want to feed on something. Yeah, it's crazy, so, isn't it? Yeah. Now, um, so so going back to your kind of your start of your angler journey, you transitioned over into, you know, the, from the pike predatory stuff into the carb, and then uh, how, like how did you transition to to the US and and well, and I, I get, so there's two stories there. So very quickly, so um, I ended up at a um, a party that a friend of ours was hosting, and he was a, a fisherman, and he they were having a housewarming party, and he introduced me to a good friend of his who happened to be a guy called Mike Wilson. And Mike's well known for the baiting pyramid and his, you know, his, right. uh, his carp catches from Save back in the days before the hair rig, before boilies, all this stuff. Yeah. Just side hooked corn and yeah, meat. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and so I got talking to Mike. I, I think at some point my girlfriend at the time got bored, you know, with the conversation and left, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't blame her. Um, And, but, but, you know, so I got talking to Mike and, and, you know, we started talking about actually talking about big catfish in Europe. And, um, but we finally got on to talking about carp. And he said, well, if you want to go carp fishing, I, you know, he said, I'm fishing this lake called Save. And um, if you want to come fish it, let me know. So, Back then, Save was run by um, uh, an angling club. This is, you know, a couple of years before the syndicate took over. Sure. And um, Ricelip Angling Club had the rights, but they weren't over happy with people wanting to come carp fish it. They were more a family member, match fishing kind of deal. Right. So I had to spend a year's apprenticeship going on these um, damn coach trips to go uh, match fishing on the Thames before I could, you know, really declare myself. No, <laughs> yeah, you had a, you had a year, though, probationary it? period. Right, right. So, so the year I actually got to really start fishing, it was I think it was the end of '79, um, and then you know I didn't carp fish in the winter. You just didn't think about it too much then. Of course, yeah. Uh, so my real season started 1980 on Sabe. 
And that's when the syndicate started. So we were restricted primarily. We could fish anywhere, but we basically most of the carp angling members from Ricelet fished the uh, the island. And so, yeah, it was it was a really interesting experience because, you know, on the opposite bank, you had people like Rod Hutchinson, uh, John Baker, Andy Little, Lenny Middleton, you know, the, um, and, and, you know, it was... You could see, you know, you could tell how competitive and secretive it was. It was just yeah, it was super right. secret squirrel, wasn't it, back then? Yeah, <laughs> and it was like you know, end of nineteen seventy nine. That you know, Mike came running down the bank, dangling this hook with a bait suspended below, and like, what the hell have you got there? And you know, that was the first introduction to uh, hair rig. So yeah, it was it was a it really was quite the experience. And you know, we'd make I'd actually make up boilies on the bank. Um, because I, I come across this actually a couple of years before, and I come across this shrimp paste called Bellacan. Um, and, um, Mike and I had been using it for chub and stuff like that. And we started making, you know, these straightforward semolina boilies, but the smell was so awful. <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I couldn't cook them. I couldn't do them at home. So I'd do them on the bank in a little pot and, you know, I'd make up about 20 baits and throw a few out. And so it was really, talk, talk about, you know, basic. It was, but we caught fish and it was a lot of fun. So, and then after that, actually I took a, I didn't, I stopped carp fishing or stopped fishing for a while. I actually got into windsurfing and sailing and some motorsports and stuff like that and ended up uh, my wife getting a job offer to come work in the States in Connecticut. Wow. Okay. And that was 1994. So um, that was kind of drag all the tackle out of the, the cupboard and bring it over. And did you? I mean, at that time, did you know that were um, you know the the opportunities for for carp fishing in the US, or was it just kind of absolutely not? Right, right. I mean, I mean, <laughs> it was it was you know we we had literally three months to pack up the house, you know find schools over here, all that stuff, because you know, our kids were like one and three, and, and travel over. And um, what actually happened is I couldn't work for the first six months until I got a visa. That's uh, correct, yes. <laughs> it's a lot of work, isn't it, at that point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I'm, I'm wandering around Connecticut looking at stuff, and, and I come across a guy sitting on the Connecticut River with a, with a green brolly. And I'm like, Jeez. that looks weird. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you know, and it, it was uh, it was Nigel Griffin. Fancy that. Small so, yeah, it was kind of funny, and then you know got to meet all the other guys, and you know the early camp days with all you know. So it was it was it was really refreshing to get back into not only carp fishing but all the other fishing that Connecticut offers, and uh, it, it was it was it was a lot of fun. It was yeah, a lot. What of fun. a transition, though, huh? I mean. It's quite a, quite a bit of difference, isn't there? For I mean, for those of for those anglers that aren't aware of what the US is like and what it offers in terms of fishing in general, but carp fishing, it is quite a big difference from UK to to here. Isn't I, I, yeah, I, I think the the biggest difference for me is I mean, like you know, as you know, in the UK, everything's controlled. Um, yes. I mean, yeah. you know, if it's a you know, you either have to pay to get on the water for a day's fishing on a day ticket water. Or, or you have to be a member of a club or a syndicate um, to ha have access to the really, really good fisheries. They tend to have limited memberships. I mean, there's lots and lots of waters over there with some fantastic fish. But, you know, when you come here and literally, I mean, you know, there, there was, we just didn't know where the fish were. 
Yeah, there's a lot of work, isn't it? It's a lot of work involved. <laughs> I mean, there was, you know, people like, you know, sadly that, you know, our late Franz Lazinski passed away yeah. this year and Nigel and Quid and those guys uh, and Steve. And we, we'd go up and fish um, up in Agawam on the Connecticut River there. Yeah. There was a, a section of water you could get to right along the, you know, literally you could park your car. Around the roadside and there. Be yeah. fishing, and there was some cracking fish in there. Not huge. I mean, you know, 20 pound fish was a was an exception. But you could normally go up there and get four or five fish, you know, quite easily. And some days you'd have, you know, those banner days where it was just nonstop catching. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then we started, you know, kind of looking further afield and finding, you know, I mean, I found a few waters around where I lived that had fish. And really, I mean, it was quite amazing to do that kind of wandering around. I mean, there was a place I was told that had carp and I went down there, I think, five or six weekends in a row, never saw a fish, never saw a fish. <laughs> and, and literally, I mean, I go down first thing in the morning, I go back in the evening because that's when you can normally expect to see them. And I'm like, I was literally about to give up. And as I'm walking out one day, I, I, there was a guy walking his dog and, and he, we, we were chatting and I said, oh, you know, do you know anything about the fishing here? And he actually turned around and said, oh, there's some huge carp in here. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I'm like, so you know, you know, yeah, you do normally hold your hand about twelve inches apart. Go, you know, so like that size, and he went, no, about this size. I'm like, well, that's about 35, 40 inches. <laughs> and I said, how big would a carp? How big are those? Do you think they are? And he said, well, about forty pounds. <laughs> and I'm like, Wait, how do you know they're forty pounds? He said, I weighed one. <laughs> well, it turned okay. out, it turned out his dad used to bow hunt. Right, and it, this they had once literally mounted and above their fireplace. So I thought, well, hopefully he hasn't killed them all. Um, and you know, it turned out to be you know, one of the most extraordinary fisheries that I've ever ever set up on. And you know, I think seventy percent of the fish I caught were over twenty pounds. I mean, just the numbers were mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. It's it's like that. I think there's so. I mean, the same for a lot of waters. I think across the US, that just are untouched. That no one really has even started to scratch the surface on. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, we we thought there might be some nice fish in there, and uh, you know, I started literally using Mike Wilson's baiting pyramid. Started putting you know bait in over a long period of time. Right. Because um, the access in the, you know, like in a lot of waters is limited in, in in many cases. So it was a question of bringing the fish to me rather than trying to get to the fish in a lot of cases. And um, I think there was Steve Clow, myself, and this guy, Chris. And we were, we were set up fishing within, I don't know, 20 feet of each other. My rod went off first, and that was uh, my first US 30, just over 30 pounds. And as I'm landing that, Steve's rod went off. Jeez. He's playing a, a fish that t- turned out to be – actually, no, it's Chris's rod went off first. He had one, and that was 32 or 33. And then Steve's went off, and it was 36. So within within 20 minutes, we had three fish over 30 pounds on the bank. And this was 1996 or seven. Yeah, it's just unreal, isn't it? I mean, it was. I mean, I mean, nobody, nobody had seen fish like that caught like that. I mean, it, you know, it's commonplace now, but for us, it was. We were just. We were well, <laughs> you don't. I mean, for something like that that you don't expect, and then all of a sudden, it just they just show up out of nowhere. Yeah, 
yeah, it really throws you off, doesn't it? And it makes you wonder what else is out there as well. I think so. And, it, you know, I mean, you know, I got to fish plenty of other places over the years, whether it's on the St. Lawrence and places like that. But it's, um, you know, sometimes it's those places that are literally on your doorstep that you, I mean, Battiston Park, as many people know, yeah, was 15 minutes from where I live in Connecticut. And I, I studiously avoided fishing that for 15 years. <laughs> even even though even though you know Connecticut DEP listed it as one of the few places that actually had carp in, right? And it was we we were supposed to be having a, a fishing somewhere, and I think the river came up so high we couldn't fish it. So I said, well, let's go fish Baddison, and it was absolutely last minute, last minute stuff. And we all piled down there, and I think we had three fish out: one of about four pound, one of about twelve, and one of about twenty four. Jeez, what a jump. So, so it was like, you know, my eyes were opened and I went back like three nights later. And in you know, I, I think I fished from about four in the afternoon and I had to I had to be home at eight o'clock because we were supposed to be going out for dinner. And um I had a just as it was getting dark, I had a fish of about 22, then I had a 28, and literally as I'm packing up, I had a fish of just over 30 pounds. Unreal. And, and the water was almost boiling in front of me. I so mean, they, just, they, just, they just moved in, obviously, and they just were, they were just yep. going for it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we had fishings there and we had, you know, some extraordinary fish. And I don't think many people even fish it now. Right. Which yeah, is, now, over the years, some good fish have come from there, haven't they? I mean, there's been some quite memorable fish out of there as well. Yeah. I mean, Steve, Steve Clay had a 38 out of there. And, I mean, lots of people had their first 30-pounders out of there. Uh, it was, but it was a, what I call a bookend water. You typically caught them right around dawn or right around dusk. Right. And um, if you fish into the night, it was just you were played by catfish. Oh, they're horrible. <laughs> yeah. like, uh, I'll tell you what, I, I thought they were horrible until I went to Parco and you get them 25, 30 pound channel. Well, that's, yeah, that's a little different, isn't it? Uh, they really oh, scrap them. Absolutely horrid. I mean, they fight like crazy, but they completely wreck your, your gear. Completely like, wreck. Kind of strip everything down again, get rid of the slime and all that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Kind of like bream, bream getting breamed, isn't it? Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly <laughs> like that. It, I mean, but they, you know, they, oh, they're a nightmare. Absolute nightmare. Oh, so. wow, that's, that's awesome. It's really cool to hear some of the, um, you know, some of the excerpts from your kind of angling journey from the UK, especially comparing it to what it's like over here. So now I know um, over the years you had some involvement with um, with CAG, the Carp Anglers Group, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I started off as a state chair and I'm, I'm now president of uh, yeah. CAG. So it, it's been an interesting experience. I mean, as you, you probably got, you know, a flavor of the history from both Mike and, and Nigel. That's right, yeah. Um, and I took over, what was it, three years ago now? Um, so it's it's been a it's been quite a journey. I, mean, I think CAG, you know, suffered quite considerably for a few years with social media and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, we started to get, you know, get things moving in the right direction, memberships up quite dramatically since uh, I took over. Um, we've got the Facebook page, it's about four and a half thousand people on there. Right. So that's a that's a you know, like most things though, it's it's um, it's transitioning people from, I think, the, 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 the bank side fishing in the United States and helping them up that ladder to um, understand more about carp fishing as a, 
you know, with the techniques and different tackle and, and so on, and, and particularly carp care. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's got that educational piece, hasn't it, to really kind of help it, it really the awareness. Has. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I think, unfortunately, uh, we, we, we suffer a bit with social media in that people can be very quick to um, attack people who don't know yeah, they just don't know any better. Do they? they just don't know any better. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I try and describe to people in the UK, you know, that when you go to most of the tackle shops over for, for bankside tackle, it, it's a lot of the gear is very, very rudimentary. I mean, bright, shiny leads, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or stuff like that is very, very difficult. And so, you know, you, you've got to kind of help people access what's available to them. Because I think, you know, um, I mean, it's great that we've got big carp tackle, carp kit and these folks out there. But often that, that gear is a little, they, 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 I think they're nervous about it. They don't understand it. So it's helping them transition through, you know, some simple um, tackle and techniques to catch their first carp, helping them make sure they have a decent net and a, hopefully a mat or something to lay the fish on. And, and teaching them how to hold a fish. I mean, it, we're really back to very, very basic things. Yeah, there's a lot of little things, isn't it, that all kind of add up to one big educational piece just to kind of help yeah. push, it, push it into the better light as opposed to... And, and I think, you know, you can't throw it at them too quickly. I mean, I, mean I, I try and, you know, I mean, I think for a lot of people who maybe don't know the history of carp fishing in the UK, when you look at that whole process there, yeah, when I started out, I mean, in the 1960s, um, there was a book published by Richard Walker, who is one of the most famous carp anglers and probably the father of carp angling in, in the UK. It's the and he's holding yeah. up on the cover of the book, two carp with his fingers in the, in the gills. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, they, I mean, I didn't see a met until well into the 1980s because we used a wet sack or laid them on the grass like everybody did then. Um, I mean, we had decent sized nets, which was good. Um, but I mean, you know, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, top carp anglers, you know, were, they actually didn't have nets. They, they used a small gaff <laughs> to, unreal, to, to put it into the lip of the carp so they could unlock yeah. it, release it. I mean, we, we've come a long, 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 long way. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Obviously plenty of years in between it all, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's still, it's yeah, one of those still things. Education. It's it's and, and you know we just have to help people transition from you know the basic fishing over here. Uh, I mean you know fly fishing and lure fishing over here is incredibly sophisticated. Yeah, uh, to it. <laughs> some bank some of the bank side stuff is not, and and that's what we have to help people you know develop and and, and I, I'm, I'm sure we'll see some things coming out of fishing over here that will apply to Europe. I mean I think. Some of the pack bait techniques and method fishing is oh definitely close yeah. my mind. Some of the things that people do and how resourceful they are. It's yeah, it's definitely caught on over there. I think a lot. I know. Um, I know there were some English guys that had come over a few years back that kind of took the uh, the pack bait style back with them and had yeah. Tried well, that, that was Frank Warwick. I mean, yeah, that was yeah, Frank. right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he came up with some very innovative stuff. You know, that's when he had his own bait company, which unfortunately. Um, didn't didn't work out, but I mean, very very clever stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, Frank Frank's brain is just blows my mind sometimes to, to the, the lateral thinking that he comes up with. I mean, some of the rigs and stuff that he developed. But you know, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Hopefully, at some point we will uh, 
might be able to touch base with Frank and. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. You might you might have uh, to have the beep out, but <laughs> <laughs> Keep, keeping keeping Frank on track is sometimes interesting. But no, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I, I could spend hours talking to him, and it's uh, yeah. I mean, no, one I mean, of those people you know, who's just extraordinary in terms of their depth and knowledge. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got some uh, some good insights as to a lot of stuff, especially you know the technical side of it as well. So. Yeah, absolutely, well, uh, absolutely. Obviously, with, with CAG going on and everything, and, and the progression of that, and it's obviously still growing. You, you, when you were here on the eastern area of the US, you kind of had a, a big hands-on with like DCDP, with um, kind of creating some trophy waters, right, and catch and release kind of. Yeah, limits. I mean, and that that I think is something I'd love to see repeated in other parts of the United States. And we we got very lucky because. Um, you know, David Moore with his uh, carp tournaments on the Connecticut River really helped to sort of, I think, highlight some of the things that were going on carp fishing wise um, and, and get DP interested. You know, I was doing talks at local tackle shops. You know, we had the fish ins, we invited uh, some of the DP guys to come down to those. Um, Nigel Griffin introduced us to one of their fishery biologists who, you know, we got caught him his first carp and then. He came and joined one of the fishings at Batterson and got a, I think he got a 26 pounder. I mean, it was like, you I mean, his first fish was like 10 or 12 and his next one was 26. <laughs> so, so we had a, we, you know, we, we, it took us probably eight or nine years. I mean, I mean, this is how long it sometimes takes to, to really get these guys on board. And I, I yeah. think that once they understood how many people were involved in carp fishing in Connecticut, they, they really bought into it. And when we got a lot of the state representatives and, and the DP commissioner involved. Um, so eventually, you know, they agreed to um, introduce creel limits for carp. So statewide in Connecticut, you're only allowed to take a maximum of five fish with one over 30 inches. Um, and now that might not sound like a lot, but it, it it's huge in terms of limiting the, you know, potential detriment to big carp. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we were then able to, you know, create some selective trophy cart waters where um, you're only allowed to take one fish and it has to be under 26 inches. So again, absolute protection for these, you know, wonderful big fish that, uh, as I'm finding out through some research over here, these these big fish that might be older than we even imagined, um, I mean, I thought, you know, 20-pound carp might be, you know, 10, 12 years old like they are in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> you, may, you may be looking at fish in the, you know, 25 to 30-pound range that could be older than that. They may be closer to 20 years. Yeah, so, unreal, isn't it? so losing a big trophy fish like that is, is you know, a massive blow to, to catch and release carp fishing. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the bow fishermen were, were you know, kind of, coming back with a vengeance when they found this all out. So it, it's not over yet, but you know, no, of course not. I think it's one of those things that over the, over the years, it, it, I think it's going to be a kind of back and forth battle, isn't it? Exactly. Um, exactly. And I think, you know, like, you know, David Moore and I have discussed, I mean, if they want to have their own waters and we'll have ours, that's kind of fine, you know, because we can then protect the trophy carp in, in the catch and release waters and, you know, they can annihilate everything until it's all dead, you know. Um, and, and, you know, put it in perspective, I mean, through all of the discussions that happened, we came across one of these guys boasting on a, a bow hunting forum 
that they in the spawn they'll kill 50 to 80 fish a night yeah it sounds uh, it's just crazy which is, which is i mean i mean i thought you know five ten maybe but that's just outrageous and, you, and we know what happens to these fish they just get dumped in the water yeah, life sadly, yeah. you know they're, they're you know it's uh and it and they're all big fish as well I mean, it, it, like, kind of like you said, it, it's, there's no way to really get around it. You know, the bigger fish are the ones that generally are going to get kind of get knocked out, aren't they? Because they're yeah. the e- easiest yeah. to see and, and find and the smaller ones just kind of get away, <laughs> get away yeah. with it. And the other thing that, you know, is, you, know I, I, you know, again, you know, doing a lot of background research, I mean, you know, Minnesota um, is very anti-carp. Whether they're you know the big heads, silver or, or grass carp, um, I mean they they had a major um, program, heavily funded program to to eliminate carp from key, key waters. But at the same time, there's also some fascinating research that's come out of the work they've done. And you know one of the things that we you know I mean for instance in Connecticut, because of the nature of the waters and the way the carp spawn. Um, predatory species like sunfish and perch, basically there's very, very, very few carp escape those spawning grounds. Right, because they're being being wiped out by these other fish, obviously. Absolutely, absolutely. So, in fact, what happens in a lot of um, waters in the U.S. where they're like that, um, you actually get years where there's almost very, very few carp make it to adulthood. So we we have years in, in... Connecticut and other states where you may only see a major successful spawning event once every five to eight years, which, yeah. which makes it even more dramatic as to how uh, critical it is to protect these trophy carp. Um, but you go to other where areas where they have what they call anoxic spawning marshes where the predatory fish cannot survive. And the carp basically explode. I mean, they get to <laughs> yeah. six, seven inches over a period of two years. So when they enter the main rivers or lake systems, there's almost nothing that can touch them. So that's why you have some areas where they have a, a lot of small fish and other areas like we have in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, where in New York perhaps, where you know you don't see many small fish overall. It's mostly, you know, you only have those year classes where you get those particularly large fish. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the others obviously been kind of knocked off the chain and, and the, the yeah. girls have just survived, you know? And yeah, it's one of those things that now I, you know, now you're fitting pieces of the jigsaw together. I mean, there's a couple of waters like the one I was talking about at the beginning, you know, where 70% of the fish I caught were over 20 pounds, you know, to catch a fish below 10 pounds, I think I'd have one or two a year which kind of fitted in with that whole, you know, understanding of um, year classes, that there were very, very, very few fish that actually survived the spawn to make it into adulthood. Which, you know, again, you know, looking back and, you know, my fishing diary is kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, we never caught fish that small. I wonder why. And then you'd have a year where (laughs) there was a year, I think four years ago, where one of the the um, reservoirs in Connecticut, down near Middletown, it, it it exploded with you know one and two pound commons. Yeah, I mean you could go down there with a float rod and catch these fish all day long, one and two pounders. 
which is you know great fun, but it was like wow, why why did we suddenly get fish this Where size? Did they come from? Never yeah. seen. <laughs> yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. So yeah, it was a similar talking with uh, with Nigel on our last episode where. Uh, and my kind of briefly as well, um, where we've got the opposite side of it, where you know, like fish have kind of just vanished almost in certain waters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether that's to do with that. I mean, um, Nigel kind of touched on a, a thing where it's kind of like a six to ten year kind of cycle where the fish kind of move out and then then they will kind of sh- randomly just show back up again or, or whatever it might be, yeah. but. It's extraordinary. And I think, again, you know, whether, you know, they're moving from one location to another or, or you know, maybe on those cycles. I mean, I, I, I've seen that in a number of places where you come back two years later and, and they've either, you know, magically reappeared, um, you know, somewhere else in another swim or it, there could be a whole bunch of reasons. A yeah, whole of bunch of, but I mean, you know, this one place I fish for, I'm thinking of it, it's primarily for, 15 years um i baited up three swims on this water and i rotate them so they didn't get over overfished yeah but it was almost like clockwork i mean i you know <laughs> because of family pressures and work pressures i was only fishing you know four to six hour sessions mostly so i'd get there just after work but i'd always bait up at that same time but i could turn up between you know fish for those you know four to six hours and end up with, you know, one or two fish or as many as 10 or 12 fish and all good sized fish. Yeah. It's fantastic, I mean, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, in the days when we, you know, when we only had two rods in Connecticut and we managed to get a third, you know, with the work with Kang and other people, um, you know, I'd only fish two rods back then, but I'd always have a third set up, baited, ready to go. And as I had one fish in the net, I cast that back. The other back one's dying out. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, you'd end up, you know, I've had, you know, two fish over 30 in the net at one time. And, you know, it's just mad, <laughs> completely mad. Yeah, so have, I think when they're on like that, you've got to maximise that uh, potential avenue, you kind of, the opportunity that's there. Because I think, you know, the, the main thing, difference between here and, and the UK, for instance, on the waters over there is that the carp are much more, they move about a lot more. So, you know, whatever... Now, they can't rely on anglers' bait, so they're moving from one place to another, feeding on whatever you know is in season, and and we're a stop along the way for the most part. So, you know, we're, we're effectively you know setting out you know ground bait or chum as a almost as an ambush, and a you know sometimes you can hold them for longer periods of time, but for the most part they they move through, and uh, they definitely move in similar size fish shoals. So you might get two or three fish around in the teens and then you might get a 20 or three and and then you might get a couple of big fish. So being ready to be on it is absolutely critical because that's yeah, one it's of key, the isn't opportunities. It? Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, uh, t- talking, I know you kind of mentioned about like the European waters like Parco and some of the English waters where tactics are very simple, like UK tactics versus US tactics. It's very simple fishing out here, obviously, like, do you think we need all the all the crazy, you know, rigs and pop ups and and stuff like that? Or is it? I mean, it's just one of those things we just enjoy to use it because it's. I, it's I think that's right. We enjoy using. It. I mean, like, I think we enjoy making things difficult for ourselves. And, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you know, I, I mean, over the years, I, it's been really interesting because over the years, I've I've kind of gone from. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a tackle junkie. I have to admit it. You know, there you go. I've said it now. Yeah, uh, I think I've done or other we all so are. Many different <laughs> things. I love trying out all the most 
latest rigs and playing around with them. But in the end, I mean, I actually, you know, I, I got to the, you know, the last couple of seasons in Connecticut, for instance, and I decided, for instance, on the Connecticut River, I was only going to fish one way, and that was with a, an inline lead with a, a method around it and, and a very, very simple, um, you know, three or four inch hook link, size six hook with a, either a couple of bits of plastic on it or a wafter. I can't tell you how successful it was. <laughs> and that, obviously that outcaught everything you'd really been doing up until that point. I, th I think what it did is it forced me to focus on what, what was important, which is put it where the fish are. Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, really focusing on very effective hook, hook rigs. I mean, um, you know, when we had, when I ran the carp conferences in Connecticut, the last one I, we did, I talked about, you know, the importance of rig tying. And again, I think a lot of people get into tying these complex rigs. And unless you're very, very, very careful, it's quite easy to, to misalign something. And, and it, they're just not that, they're too com complicated to, to, to be super effective, especially, especially with the number of fish we catch. Um, you know, some of the hard mono rigs, they can get twisted very quickly after a couple of oh, fish. Yeah get pinched or something. And yeah. So that's why, that's why I went back to basics because, you know, we're catching so many fish. Um, oh, you know, you, you just got to keep, keep it simple. Um, and I, that's what I found is, you know, I always carry a diamond file, sharp my hooks, whether it's fly fishing, lure fishing, you name it. Um, and, it, you know, wind in, check the hook point, make sure it's not turned over a couple of swipes on the file back out there. That's it. Yeah, a lot of those rigs are kind of people don't realise they really are the concept and design behind them are more for those waters where the fish are really pressured, aren't they? And yeah, I mean where where you're fishing for one one bite. And absolutely. But, but even then, I mean like here, you know, like last, you know, uh yeah, last year um I was monitoring you know every kind of bump I got. Um you know, this is just me being fanatical about it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was more, more, you know, I mean, this is, this is the sign, you know, this is the scientist coming out in me. Um, but I was really fascinated to see how, whether I was getting done and, you know, what percentage of fish I actually landed, why I might have lost a fish. And by really just paying attention to stuff, I, I typically would get, you know, 85% success rate between you know, a bump on the line and a fish in the net. Just I, hitting those bumps on the tip kind of, you yeah, mean? I, yeah, okay. I push that up. I push that up to over 95%. So, you know, if you pay attention to the small details, you will land more fish and you will land bigger fish as well because you're not missing out on them. I mean, I mean, a classic instance, um, you know, the water where I was catching all the very big fish, I took a, several people over the years down there and helped them catch their first 30 pounder. And um, I took this guy down there and, you know, I had the baited area, put him on the side I thought the fish would move in from and I was on the other side. So he should have had, you know, the first opportunity. <laughs> and we're sitting there and I, and I watched his um, indicator move up like, you know, an inch, another inch. And I said to him, if that moves again, hit it. Right. And he says, no, 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 no. this is carp fishing. When they go, they'll just scream off. I'll wait for a screamer. 
Well, it moved another inch and nothing happened. And I think within five or six minutes, I got the same thing, an inch, an inch, and I hit it, 32 pounds. Unreal. And I, and I said, look, you know, we all, you know, you, we all get the screaming runs, but and these fish, we, you know, they're not pressured. No way are they pressured, but yeah, that's it. sometimes they, they can be, you know, just the way they feed and pick up stuff. They can sit there. I mean, Frank Warwick, oh, yeah. his tricks using heavier leads. Five ounce, the reason he uses five-ounce leads is because anything below that, they can shake that hook out. That's it. And the weight of it, uh, you know, obviously helps set, set the hook yeah. know, for you. Uh, more resistance, uh, better better hook holds as well. And, that, and that's also one of the reasons I also like, particularly on the river, the, the inline leads, because the, the weight's further forward. So you've probably got 70% of the weight in the first, you know, half of the lead because of, the, you know, the, the, the shape of it. So that that fish tries to pick it up. It's, you know, it's it's got that hook immediately especially with a short hook link immediately dragging into its leg oh yeah then they're nailed with that aren't they and it's almost it makes it harder for them to get rid of doesn't it yeah yeah i mean that's yeah i mean i think that's part of the trick and uh you know when you see how hard i mean some of the the, the fish in parco um you knew when you had a big common because the <laughs> the, the, uh, the head shaking that they did was insane I mean, it was like somebody just like slamming the rod tip down in the middle of a fight. It, it was mind boggling. And then you get them towards the net and you just see them and they do this head shake where their head was probably moving two feet from side to side. And, and you'd see, you'd see occasionally that hook just fly out Ugh. without, even without a lead, it would just fly out. They, they, the, the violence was so much that if there was a boilie on it, it would throw the whole thing out. Oh my gosh. And, you know, because the water was so clear there. I mean, it was like, it was, it, it was a real learning experience just to how <laughs> yeah. they do it. I think it's great having places like that. You can, you can learn from, like you said, a learning experience and kind of bring it back with you and apply what, what yeah. you see through the water and apply it to into, into waters that you're not, obviously can't really see what's going on when you're playing those fish. And Oh, it's, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I, you know, that's why I say, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, being, very focused on on some detail without without having complex rigs or complex gear you know you can you can really really maximize your opportunities i mean you know strategic baiting ideas like you know whether it's the um you know the baiting pyramid or something like that i mean you know a lot of people are focused on fishing boilies over here but you know i i say to people you know go out on uh, get on kindle um rod hutchinson's um, the carp strikes back, yeah. Because it, I, I think that that absolutely describes some of the current fishing scene over here. Oh, I, I mean, think it does, yeah, through, quite well. Yeah, <laughs> it's written through the seventies and eighties, and his his focus on particle fishing. I mean, I love fishing particles. I mean, you know, when you you, know, you can go and spend a small fortune buying a hundred pounds of bait here, you know, boilies. Oh but yeah, you can get yeah, you, know, you can get four sacks of corn for twenty five. You know. For next to nothing. Oh yeah, and it, and it works too. You know, obviously both both aspects of it work. The boilie with the higher nutritional values, yeah, versus yeah. the corn. I mean, they they both do work, don't they? We've seen the results, and we, and we know that. Not but. just there, but I mean, if you look at if you look at some of the other particles, whether it's maple peas that you can get over here as well, yeah. they've actually got a very high nutritional content. So you know, I, I think you know we we often get kind of stuck in looking in a particular route that you know. 
when we go back to you know basics and, and just you know you know good old tin of sweet corn is highly effective, but oh, you know, isn't it just yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the days of you know wandering around a lake with a, a handful of sweet corn and just throwing it in a few places and coming back half an hour and seeing if there's fish feeding there is it's amazing and uh, you know to have those opportunities like we do is is spectacular. I actually did that on a, a UK water a few years ago. I mean a highly pressured day ticket fishery. There's about eight lakes on this one down in Sussex that a mate oh. and I to, and we were walking around and it was like, we, we were back, you know, like, you know, in our late teens walking around the lake, just looking for fish and everybody else is out fishing the islands in the middle and all that stuff. And we, we just had some bread and sweet corn. That's and, all you need sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. just <laughs> And the fish were almost literally under people's feet. It, it was yeah, amazing. it's like that here a lot of the time, isn't it? Obviously, a lot, of, uh, most of the, the the big, especially. I mean, we fish a lot of the tidal rivers here as well, but the fish don't really do too much in those currents, and they don't like feeding in it, so they move into those marginal areas, don't they? So a lot of times, pick up the fish in the in the closer, shallower spots. Exactly. I mean, there's there's waters where you know where you can get a lot of bankside activity during the daytime. You know, especially where there's you know. Um, people along the towpath or swimming in the water and stuff like that. But yeah, you can also go down, you know, when it gets dark and just, you know, bait up along the, the, uh, the margins and phenomenal fish. I mean, you know, the, I, I've seen some massive fish caught in the margins. I mean, there's a, another lake that I fished that, um, yeah, I could catch fish casting out to an Island, but fishing literally 20 yards down the bank, in an area that <laughs> the fish felt very safe in. Yeah. In, in, I think it was probably, it went from two foot at the bank down to about three and a half and then down to a maximum of five. Um, but it was very sheltered. The fish loved it. And I only discovered it by, you know, I was, you, you couldn't see the fish from the bank or anything, but I just had to see a fish roll there one day. And, um, you know, put some bait down there and, and started catching some stunning fish. Absolutely stunning. Um, simply because they were, they were comfortable in the, where they were. Yeah. Isn't that crazy how you can, you know, pick up these fish that are just, you know, they find these little feeding zones or these safety zones and yeah. undercut areas or an overhanging branch or something. And, and, you know, that's, you know, like, you know, I mean, that's, that's what I think is so magical about carp fishing. I mean, you know, I, 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 I've got a fly fish, you know, all over the world and lure fish and do all those things. But when it comes back to carp fishing, the, you know, the, it, it's just magical. I mean, you've got all the, the wonderful gear and technical side of it. But, you know, sometimes it's just getting back down to basics and, and stalking them or figuring out where they are. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, it can be a, an incredibly complex jigsaw puzzle to solve. <laughs> yes, it but, can. <laughs> but that's part, that's part of the fun as well. I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it is. And I mean, it's, it's, it's funny if you look like, even now, if you look back at it 10 years ago to what it is now, a lot of things have obviously come, come onto the market, you know, in terms of fishing aids or whether it's a bait, a specific bait that might help. But a lot of it, like you said, if you just kind of go back to the old faithful, like a can of corn sometimes can really, you know, a little bit of time spent on the water in a can of yeah. corn can really do well, quite, quite a bit you know, of damage. I say to a lot of people, before you get into, you know, the whole kind of baiting up an area and fishing with boilies and, you know, big bags of particles and stuff like that, and before you even buy a bite alarm, often the best thing to do is sit down, you know, even, you know either with a, a simple 
lead on the line, but two grains of sweet corn on the hook. Because I think that that kind of apprenticeship, if you like, learning how to read what's happening on the rod tip and imagine what's going on down at the baited hook, being able to kind of catch a carp that way gives you a better appreciation for where we've come to with places like the hair rig and all the wonderful gear that we oh, have. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, I love going up on, you know, one of the small rivers on the Blackstone river. Um, you know, there's a wonderful area up there and absolutely, you know, I, I mean, I could catch carp all day on a hair rig up there, but you know, a couple of grains of sweet corn on the hook on a, on a, you know, feeder rod or something like that is, you know, it's a blast. Yeah. It's, yeah, you can't really beat that kind of thing, can you? Well, you've, got to, you, you've actually got to be, you know, you can't put your rod down. You've got to sit there with it in your lap. and. <laughs> oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Next yeah, you know, it's gone. It's going. That's right. I mean, you come home starving because you've never got a sandwich anywhere near your mouth because, you, you know, every time you do it, the rod goes <laughs> on. You know. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Now, I mean, um, so specifically, you know, here in the US, a progression of carp angling, how do you see it going? you think it's going to continue to um, – keep kind of trundling along or do you think it's going to be a surge? I, I think it's definitely trundling along. And, um, I, I think, you know, we, we've seen, I'm trying to think now, but yeah, we always talked about how big it could grow. Um, right. I mean, one of the things is, I mean, like North America, we've got more lakes and water than probably the whole of Europe. Um, we've got more anglers. I mean, you know, we've got about 60 million anglers across or plus <laughs> across North America. So in terms of the number of carp and the number of we absolutely dwarf the UK. And, and most people don't realize, but I, I think the European carp scene has been valued at somewhere around about five or $6 billion. Um, so, you know, if it took off, off over here, we could absolutely dwarf that market. Um, but, but it's a long road ahead because, you know, we don't have the same appreciation of carp from, if you like, the, the state fisheries bodies that, you know, Sadly, you know, Connecticut and Texas and a couple of others may be the only ones that really get it. Um, but it's but it's happening, and it, and I think one of the great things with social media is it's helped brought you know bring that to people's attention. So in in what two years on Facebook, and it's the reason one of the reasons I've kept the Facebook going for the Carp Anglers Group is Absolutely. we've gone from about two thousand to four and a half thousand people. Um, yeah, isn't it crazy like i mean it is definitely one of those uh, social media or any kind of social media whether it be you know a lot of people obviously use different different platforms instagram and whatnot and facebook yeah but it's just amazing like you want you know one person could see something that they may never have seen before in terms of carp angling and then that could just trigger a whole domino effect for them exactly and yeah and, and, and you know you know that i mean it, it brings with it all sorts of issues as well you know because yeah, you know, we've seen whether it's, you know, on our Facebook page or other organizations, Facebook pages or, or sites, you know, um, bow fishermen trying to get in. And we, we've really beefed up our, our um, process through our moderators to, to, to stop that happening, which I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased that I think it's been effective. Um, and also to try and help educate experienced carp anglers just to be a bit more forgiving for the newcomers and just help them. Yeah. I think that's the, quite a big thing, isn't it? That, that part of it, a lot, a lot of guys kind of forget where, where they started off as well. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and look, you know, we all, we all want to see the best outcomes for the fish, but I think by, you know, the more people we can encourage and, and educate and, and get involved, 
the more likely we are to put pressure on bow fishing and, and get more credibility amongst uh, state fishery groups to um, be more thoughtful and protective, to, especially towards you know big carp, trophy size carp. Um, and, you know, I've had discussions with people in Europe they, they, you know, who, who really don't understand how different it is over here um, and how lucky they are that, you know, carp are revered, you know. <laughs> yeah, they are, aren't they? I mean, they really are. I mean, it, in some way it's kind of like, I mean, obviously I come from England myself as well, so I'm used to those, you know, those, pay, not pay legs, but club water syndicate venues and, you know, the, the very high-end kind of, waters that where you, the fish are catered to and you get the best yeah. of the best and, and then you come here and, and you could kind of get a slap in the face really don't you <laughs> like, yeah i mean i mean yeah i mean i've, I've come across scenes that you know it just you know they're like a horror film where you go down there's a couple of guys filleting you know 20 pound 30 pound carp on the bank and you know it's like oh geez you know um but a lot of the time you know i've also you know i mean you know it's funny i was, I was thinking about cag fishing years ago where I think it was on the Who's a Tonic, and there's, I think Nigel was there and a few of us, Mike Dragone probably, and, and a guy and his wife came down. I mean, it was freezing cold. <laughs> and, and, I mean, you know, he sent you know he sent her into the water to net this fish. Oh, my gosh. And, and you know, I mean, you know, next thing you know, it's in a bucket and being bled. And, I mean, it's like, oh, my God. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the reality. And, you know, we, you know it's, it's, it goes on, but hopefully. You know, it we does, can- yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, think- I, I created signs for the Connecticut River. Please release the big fish um, in in six different languages. Wow! And, you know, <laughs> and, and also with a warning, you know, like skull and crossbones don't eat big fish because they're they're full of toxins. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that was. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always hope. One can always hope. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. But you know, you know. So we go, yeah, we just keep moving forward. And, um, yeah, I think it's great that we've got, you know, some actual tackle shops now starting to carry gear. Um, there are a lot more tackle shops carrying it. Yeah, I know, um, you know, big, big carb tackle, obviously, uh, big carb tackle imports. And yeah, working in conjunction with them guys to really kind of bring on board shops, uh, smaller tackle shops that could carry, you know, enough gear for that local area that might need. You know those specific. Well, I, think it's about, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how many, but there's at least you know. I mean, across the whole of the United States. I mean, we, we might have four or five local tackle shops. I mean, I know we've got them out in Indianapolis. Yeah, uh, I think, I think there might be more. If not more, it might be even close to ten. I'm not sure, but I know it's. Um, there's there's definitely a few. So yeah, yeah, which which is great. I mean, I mean, you know, you and I were used to you know like every town would have you know, one or two tackle shops. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, so, so, you know, it's, it's a very different scene over here, but people are beginning to, you know, ask questions and, you know, I, 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 you know people say, oh, yeah, we'll know when it's happened when Bass Pro cover it, carry carp gear, but God, I hope not because they've been one of the biggest supporters of bow fishing. So Yeah, I know a lot. Of, well, you know, I've had that same conversation with a number of other anglers um, and they, you know, they all say the same thing. Oh, they, they could do it. They might do it. But realistically, I, I mean, if we, it's a long way off for them, I hope. And um, I think so. Yeah. It's quite a ways off. Yeah. I'd rather see people supporting their mom and pop tackle shops and persuading them to carry stuff. Cause then you get, I think you get more local knowledge and, and that kind of stuff going on, which is always good. So yeah, it kind of creates more of a community, doesn't it? I think, and um, you know, and that all kind of leads back around to, 
you know, helping others that just starting out in the sport as well. And it kind of all ties into the, to the same kind of goal, which is, you know, just creating, creating more awareness and more education towards what we love doing, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. And, it, you know, I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, people come down and like, you know, they look at you know, all the gear, you know, the fact that you're sitting there with several thousand dollars worth of equipment <laughs> the bank, you're like, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, they think they're crazy, but uh, little do they know, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, they know when you when when you catch one. I mean, I've had people nearly die of fright, you know, that, you know, landed a big fish and they go, wow, we didn't know things like that swam in here, you know. Uh, you know what, I get the same thing in there but it also changes their tune as well and when you hand them the rod and the fish is on exactly you know, like i've done that a couple of times i'm sure it's probably happened to yourself where you know you've got a fish on and then the other one goes here take that and they just have yeah. to be oh yeah 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 it's absolutely amazing and you know i yeah you know, i keep saying to people look you know it's a bit like trying to you know where else you catch a 20 30 pound fish in fresh water um there's nothing really like it that fights at heart as hard grows as big and and you know can drive you quietly insane trying to catch it it's uh <laughs> yeah yeah that's it yeah it's such a fantastic fish aren't they i mean really enjoyable it's and it's and it's fun you know it's for, for yeah. everyone i think yeah once you I mean, really yeah, I, I kind of you know, I, you know i love fly fishing for car I, mean, I fly fish for car probably the first time i started fly fishing for car was back in the 1980s back in the uk Right. Um, and you know spectacularly unsuccessful um, <laughs> you know i mean those days i mean those days we pretty much cheated because we're you know you throw a bunch of floaters you know mixers on the surface and yeah kind of get them going yeah. <laughs> so it was a bit, bit of a cheat but you know the, the wonderful thing here in the states is the opportunities to fly fish for carp i mean yeah it's really grown isn't it the fly flies carp kind yeah. of thing uh it's really 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 growing actually from what from what i've heard and and there's i mean near you i mean you know, you've got the who's a tonic i mean on the who's there's some great spots to fly fish for carp and actually the um one of the fly shops out there actually now runs um you know float trips for fly fishing for that's carp. right yeah and um but you know there's a couple of places there. I mean, the first time I caught one on the Hoosie, I had no idea. I mean, I went, I was catching smallmouth bass in the summer and I saw a carp and I, you know, I actually completely misread how big it was. <laughs> and um, so I kind of put on a, you know, you know, a woolly bugger and, and threw it out there and the damn thing ate it. Yeah, there it goes. And I'm fishing, I think I had a four weight with me and, and this thing just scorched oh, up, the, up the river for about 100 yards and I'm running up the bank trying to catch it. And I actually, I actually landed it. I, you know, when I landed, I was I was shocked. It was probably about 17, 18 pounds. So, yeah. It was, uh, so, yeah, that was kind of, you know, a lot of fun. And I've, I've taken people, you know, help people catch their first carp on a fly up there and even just casting at bubbles. And, you know, I took a guy a couple of years ago. He'd never caught a carp before. And I think his first one was about 15 pounds and his second one was 25 yeah that'd give you a good run for your money won't it <laughs> i mean thank goodness he caught a lot of striped bass and stuff on a fly rod but you know it was uh it was to see his face i mean he was blown away i mean he was just yeah. delighted so oh, it's process no it's yeah, brilliant it, stuff it's good fun it's good fun but it's kind of goes hand in hand with what we love doing as well the carp fishing so it's exactly kind of, exactly yeah yeah all right buddy well, i'll wrap all right, up mate. Thanks ever so much. Really appreciate you taking the time out to You're join us. You're very welcome. Uh, enjoy the weather down there. Uh, if it, you know, if it's uh, yeah, sure it's in between quite... the thunderstorms, it, as I say, you know, get out first thing in the morning, do a bit of fishing, and then you know, if I'm, you know, and then in the evenings, I'll go and do a bit of pedalling. So, 
Love it. All right, well, take care. Stay safe down there. And uh, thanks ever so much again, Ian. Really appreciate you it. Too, take care, mate. Take care. Bye for now. Yeah, bye. For more upcoming episodes of the Big Carp News podcast, written articles, product reviews, and much, much more, be sure to check out the Big Carp News website over at www.bigcarpnews.com. And also, as always, don't forget to check out Big Carp Tackle for all your carp tackle needs right here in the USA. Big thanks to Ian Sorrell for taking the time out to join us on this episode and sharing with us some of his past and current angling moments. As always, thank you for your support. Stay safe out there and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Big Carp News Podcast.